0: Today's scripture reading is from Psalm 27. It can be found on page 546 of your Red Pew Bible. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is my, the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked advance against me to devour me, and to seek him in his temple for in the day of trouble he will keep me safe in his dwelling he will hide me in the shelter of his sacred tent and set me high upon a rock then my head will be exalted above the enemies that who surround me at his sacred tent i will sacrifice with shouts of joy i will sing and make music to the lord hear my voice when i call Lord, be merciful to me and answer me. My heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my helper. Do not reject me or forsake me. God, my Savior, through my father and mother forsake me. The Lord will receive me. Teach me your way, Lord. Lead me in a straight path. Because of my oppressors, do not turn me over to the desire of my foes. For false witnesses rise up against me, spouting malicious accusations. I remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart, and wait for the Lord. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, here at Knox, we are working through a series of messages and we're exploring this whole reality of prayer, this reality of the Christian life. We're exploring how God invites us into relationship with him and, and how one of the most pivotal means of that is prayer, our praying life with God. And so what we're doing is, is we try to learn this means of prayer is we're working through the Psalms because the Psalms is the prayer book. And they teach us about prayer. They put us in the posture of prayer. And they teach us how to respond well to God. One of the most profound aspects of the Psalms. And of prayer itself. is, is, Is how an abstract truth we can have about God. We can know all sorts of things about God. But how when that abstract truth about God. Becomes electric and real to our hearts and lives. When we experience the living God. When we encounter transcendence, I guess you could say. And when that happens, when we catch sight of the living God, our, our lives get turned around. Our prayer lives get changed. How we relate to God gets changed. And the psalm we read today, Psalm 27, gives us such a rich understanding of, of that sort of prayer, that prayer that encounters God, that seeks God out. And it gives us such hope for how we relate to God in our lives. One of the striking features, I think, about this psalm um, is how this experience of God that the psalmist David has, how this encounter with this living God completely changes his life. And it brings about this poise and confidence. Did you catch that throughout the psalm? There is this, this confidence that he has to enable him to live in the face of any worry any anxiety, any fear. Did you catch those opening lines of David? The the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Whom am I going to be afraid of? And you hear that and you think, is this guy serious? Does he not live in the real world that we do? Because to tell you the truth, there's a whole lot to be afraid of, right? In this world that we inhabit. Death, for one, that's a pretty formidable enemy that scares the wits out of the best of us. Who doesn't get scared of death? Or what about, maybe even worse, diseases that suck the life out of living so that you feels like it's just a shell of a person? What about things like climate change? Housing bubbles, unemployment, depression, I mean, it, isn't it true? There's a whole lot to be afraid of. It feels like there's a lot that's dark and shadowy in this world. And, our, and fear, I, it's, it's got to be one of the most basic human responses to the world around us. And those fears often intimidate at us. They often bully us. Which is one of the things I love about the Bible in general and the Psalms in particular is, is it so refreshingly realistic? Even though, you know, there's tremendous promises throughout Scripture. It, it's not just blowing sunshine at us. It, it, it accounts for all the dark and shadowy, the hard reality about life. It's very realistic. It faces all the underground panic and anxiety we so often face head on. And here David does, does just that. He, he, he talks about two of probably the, the biggest devastations that can happen to a person. In verse 3, he says, though an army camp against me. And then later in verse 10, he says, though my father and mother forsake me. And what he's doing there is he's, he's sort of running the whole gamut of human fears and nightmares. On the one hand, he talks about an army and camping against it. There's no external disaster to your physical, to your material well-being Than to literally have an army come up against you. To destroy you. To displace you. To torture you. to, To kill you. I mean think of all the Syrian refugees on the run. Because of this massive external devastation of a war that is displacing them. That they are running without anything in the hand. Just what they can carry on their back. Running for their lives. But then David looks at internal devastation. So verse 10, though my father and mother forsake me, David here is talking about some of the foundational relationships that we share in life. Your spouse, your parents, your children, your immediate family, your parents. That's where you know your love and your joy and your, your self-regard is just bound up in those relationships. But even if these things crumble, even if these things are just devastated and, and taken away, David says. I'm going to be okay. David is saying, should the the worst that human life can throw at me, if I encounter that, if the worst possible external devastation or attack or, or the greatest possible internal emotional pain and loss and grief and devastation happen, should those things, should both of them happen to me, I'm going to be okay. Because I have this one thing. If I have this one thing, I'll be all right. That's the message of this psalm. I'm not going to fear. I'm going to still be confident if I have this one thing. See how important this thing is we're talking about? One thing I ask of the Lord, says David. This only do I seek. If I have this one thing, I am
0: okay.
1: So what is that one thing, right? Well, to get at that one thing, we need to do a little work together, a little work, a little thinking on the philosophy of religion in general. Um, so hang with me on this, okay? There's a payoff. So we all know that this world we encounter is plagued with a whole lot of shadow and scarcity, um, a lot to be anxious about, afraid, and, and, and human religion, as it's humanly constructed, is a response to this, that we're all afraid And despite, it's interesting, despite efforts to get rid of religion, um, it's it's endured because we all believe the world is dangerous, it's a scary place to live, and that fear drives us to seek to somehow control that world, managing our fears. And and human religion at core is a means of trying to control an out-of-control world. But the problem of that strategy of dealing with our fear that way, is that whenever we attempt to control something, it inevitably leads to to more fear or more danger or more devastation. Because see, when you try to gain control, it means that I have to control other people around me. I have to control you. I have to control others. And that almost always inevitably leads to painful conflicts, conflicts, fights among friends. Friends culture wars, religiously driven wars, battles in families over beliefs and behaviors, and yet that impulse is is, is at the base of human religion, this means of control that fuels this dynamic of fear. One author I've been reading, a guy named Sky Jathani, he writes about how starting from that one impulse, that one core impulse to try to manage our own fears By seeking control of our world, human religion then leads out in a variety of different ways. And he names four, I guess, ways that we try to relate to God, to stay in control, to manage our fears. The first way, he calls life under God. And this sees our relationship to God in a simple cause and effect type of way. If we obey God's commandments, he's going to bless our life or our family or our nation. And our primary role is to determine what God approves of or what God disapproves of and then to, to vigilantly remain within those boundaries. This is, this is sort of typical religion of, of superstition. Of, it's sort of the classic sacrifice the virgin to appease the gods so the harvest will go well. Now there's a Christian variety of this too um, which says as long as you obey God's instructions, he's going to bless you. But if you disobey him, Look out, he's gonna curse you. You often see this in terms of tragedy or times of difficulty. You know, when there's a natural disaster, people will say, You know why this happened, right? Because people disobeyed God. Trouble with this way of relating to God is it doesn't deal with your fears. And control. Because this way of relating to God, what it does is says you can control the world by trying to control God through your morality and through your ritual. But what it does is ends up perpetuating the fear and the control and the anger and the hatred. Just extends it. So there's life under God. In our Western culture, we've abandoned mostly the notion of God. And so now we adopt another way of relating God. Life over God. It's pretty much the classic secularist posture Um, That you you deem you just don't need God as part of your world. You don't need religion. All you need to do is understand how the world operates, perhaps through science, through some other wisdom or moral principles, and if you can, you can have direct control over our universe or, or your little part of the world by and manage our fears just by operating those core principles. There's a Christian variety again of this. That seeks, you know, for, let's say, a Christian marriage or a Christian government or a Christian family or a Christian organization just by taking Christian principles, extracting them from the Bible, and putting to them use properly. And you really don't need God to be involved in that. Um, you can set God aside and you can just sort of work your life by some general Christian principles. But again, this, this doesn't work to remove our fears because no matter how well we work these principles— No matter how well we develop scientific technologies, they don't work the way we want. There are new anxieties that crop up. We use science and technology to make a better life, and all of a sudden we find these Frankenstein byproducts that we never anticipated from our technology, and they become new problems to fear and try to control. And so this cycle of fear and control continues. So there's life under God. There's life over God. Here's a third one. There's four in total. Life from God. And this is pretty much the dominant way many people in our culture treat God. It is we try to extract from God things that will make our life work well. It's classic consumer mentality. We try to manage our fears about the world by making our life work. And we pull from God all the things that help make our life work well. So we go to God to get personal health or happiness To get enough success or prosperity. And so we can hopefully insulate ourselves from the dangers and the fears of the world. We don't actually want God. We just want what God can give to us. We want someone to give us what we're looking for. Again, this doesn't ultimately take away the fears. It just insulates us. It's okay if it happens to others just as long as it doesn't happen to me. And then there's a fourth way of relating to God. And that is life for God. And this is one that's pretty common among committed people. And this says, if I really want to get rid of fear in my life, I need to accomplish great things for God. Great things for Christ and his kingdom. And so it becomes, how many, how many trafficked slaves have you freed? How many meals to the poor have you served? How many wells in foreign countries have you dug so people have clean water? How many gospel communications and presentations have you made? How strong is the ministry you serve? How many lives have you transformed? Because the more you accomplish for God, the more successful you are. And those four ways of relating to God represent the extent of a lot of how we experience God. And they produce very different ways of praying to God. And we might move from one to another in different seasons of life. And and often in the church, we try to move people from one to another. We try to move people from life above God to life under God. Try to convert them to a life in God. We try to convert people from consumer Christianity, you know, where we take from God, to a life for God, to a life of Christian commitment. But the problem in all of these Is we never get to that one thing we need. We never get to the heart. We never get to the hope of what the Bible offers us. You know what that is. Listen to David. One thing I seek. To dwell in the house of the Lord. To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. And to seek Him. David is is getting at this real encounter with the living God. Of which prayer The seeking prayer is the most beautiful expression of seeing God for who He truly is. And when that one thing happens to us, when we are given a glimpse of of something better, deeper in that moment, not deserved, but by His grace, illumined by the Spirit, something happens that reminds us there's another way to relate to God. Instead of life under God or life above God or trying to get life from God or living life for God. All those where fear still dominates. Psalm 27 is showing us there's another possibility and it is this life with God. That is the one thing that we seek, that David seek, that provides this profound freedom and from fear. In every other posture of religious life, God is used for some end. He's to be used to manage my fears. He's been used to control my world, to get me to heaven, to get me the type of life I want. He's been used to transform the world. But when you get a vision of who God is, his beauty, his wonder, his grace, in that place, you don't want to use God for anything. You just want God for himself. God's no longer a means to an end, but becomes the end himself which is who he is after all. He's the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega. He becomes the treasure for which you would give anything. David writes about this one thing, life with God, this encounter with the living God. He uses three verbs, three images, beautiful images. We're going to sort of quickly go through those. To dwell in the house of the Lord. Think of that image. It's this desire to be near, to be home with God. Think of home. It's that place of acceptance and belonging, to be welcomed for, for who you are, not forced to be anything else. You can drop all the pretenses on the masks at home. You're just there. You're, it's a place of safety, a place of security. Life with God is the invitation to come home, to be at home in this world, knowing it's perfectly safe in the hands of your Heavenly Father. To dwell in the house of the Lord, and then to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and all the other ways of relating to God you never see how beautiful God is because you're too busy trying to get something or use God for some means but when God is the end you're able to see the beauty of God life with God you you gaze upon God you behold him you take in his goodness I mean think of how we know beauty you know, we don't analyze it, we don't take it apart, we don't look at the structures, we can do all that, but, but in the end, you simply behold beauty, you take it in. Think of your favorite piece of music or favorite piece of art. You know, it's a piece of art that just overwhelms you. You put it on, or you view it, you listen to it, you look at it over and over, and what happens? I mean, there's a delight, or maybe you just weep, because it's so beautiful. It washes over you and and you forget everything else. You're not trying to prove anything. It's not a means to anything. This is the thing itself. This is what you live for. To experience the beauty of that. There's a great quote from Leonard Bernstein, who was this master composer, conductor, pianist. And he, he was... A brilliant musician, but he was also a nihilist. You know, he believed that a human life, you know, it's simply a chemical accident. He believed that really there's no meaning to life. But he said this, great quote, When I listen to Beethoven's Fifth, I can't help but believe and feel there's something right in the universe that will never let me down. You know what he's saying? He's saying the presence of beauty. When I gaze upon that beauty, you sense there's something more. You know there just has to be meaning. You know there has to be hope. Life with God, this, this prayer in which we encounter the living God is where you come to God, not to get things, but simply to enjoy God, to delight in Him, to find the meaning and the hope just in that experience. And then the third action is to dwell with God in His home, to gaze upon the beauty and then to seek Him. And then later on, verse 8, it says, My heart says, seek your face. This is, this is the heart of life with God. This personal encounter with the living God. The one thing that satisfies the face of God. Now, what does he mean, though? What is that, the face of God? Some people say, you know, I don't really get this. What is the face of God? I thought God was everywhere. Why do I have to seek his face? I've often heard people tell me, you know, I'm out in the mountains and walking along the lake. I experience the presence of God. I sense how great God is. Well, remember, God is both a spirit, which means he's everywhere, but he's also a person. This is what the face is getting at. The face is God's relational presence. When God's face shines on you, it means he delights in you. He takes deep joy when we seek that face of God. We're seeking his affirmation, his attention. You know, along with food and water, we need attention. Attention. It's interesting, studies done on on babies. A baby will lie in a crib and, and smile when there's a face smiling back at it. The baby realizes someone is watching, someone's responding, and the baby responds in turn to that. Psychologists call that attunement. The baby knows it's somehow possible to be connected, in tune with another human being. This is how it works with God. We get in tune with God. We still, as we grow up, need to be attended to. There was one um, fascinating psychological study. Um, If you're an educator, you'll like this one. Because in this study, hope this never happens to you, okay? In this study, at one prearranged signal, all the students in a classroom switched from, you know, the passive, you know, slouched, bored, no eye contact posture, to all of a sudden leaning forward, looking attentively, eagerly, you know, locking eyes with the teacher. And in the experiment, the teacher, who had sort of been mumbling and stumbling through the notes in a monotone voice before, gradually, as the students paid attention, became more animated and started using gestures and to look at the students and and speak more energetically. And then, at another prearranged cue, the students switched back to slouching and bored and no eye contact, and the teacher then went back to this monotone, not animated teaching style. There are times when I think you're all in on that experiment here every Sunday morning too. But just by our faces, our, our, our attentiveness, we encourage. And no matter who we are or what we do, we all need to be attended to. Attention is so valuable that we don't simply give it, we pay it. The face of God is that affirmation of God's attentiveness to us. His willingness to turn his face towards us. And that's a beautiful thing, isn't it? Except biblically, that's a huge problem. (laughs) Because to see the face of God is actually a terrifying thing. Remember when Moses came down, uh, he he went up to see God and and he he said, God, let me see your glory. And it was a request, God, I want to... Relationally connect. I want to I want to experience, I want of relational intimacy with you, God. What this form of prayer is all about, this seeking prayer. But God says, Okay, I'll pass by you with my goodness, but you cannot see my face, because no one can see the face of God and live. So what's this about? You know, it's not saying that God is this infinite grouch that you just don't want to be around him. You don't want to look at his cranky face because it's going to really do you in. It's saying instead that actually there's no way for for God's holy presence and sinfulness to be together. God's holiness and our sinfulness just don't coexist. Go back to Genesis. Adam and Eve, when they first sinned, what happened in the fall was that they... uh, Wasn't that the presence of God was lost? Because, of course, God's presence is everywhere in the world, right? Every human being has access to God and has some sense of God. What was lost to Adam and Eve and to all of us was that one thing we seek, the face of God, the relational presence and connection, this personal relationship with God, that love relationship with the Father, And a holy God cannot live with sin. And while we still sense his presence, we've lost his face. And so given this is a true reality of God, and that our sin is the the lost face of God, and yet we have this longing in life, that one thing that we need to relate to God. How, How do these fit together? How can we seek God's face? How can we see it shine upon us? And how can it not kill us? Well, here's the good news, friends. God has made a way for us to be in relationship. He's made a way for us to come home, to dwell with him, to enjoy his beauty, and it's in Jesus. Jesus presents to us in human form, not a form of religion predicated on controlling or managing our fears, but a divine message of invitation to come home. An invitation into love and relationship with God. Jesus, the Son of God, you know, entered our broken world. Gave his life for us. Testified by eyewitnesses and historians. And when he died, you remember what happened on that day? At noon, darkness descended. Because God turned his face away from Jesus. He was forsaken. It was the first time the face of the Father turned away from Jesus. Why? Jesus turned, God turned his face away from Jesus in judgment so that he could turn his face toward you and I in love. Jesus on the cross took all the curse, all the sins so that we could receive the blessing of God. Jesus was plunged into darkness, this isolation of God forsakenness so that we could know the warmth, the relational, the personal intimacy of God's face shining in brightness upon us. And so through the cross, all the joy, all the delight of God that God has for Jesus is given to us. Everything we deserve falls on Christ. Everything that Jesus deserves comes to us. All the blessing, the approval, the affirmation of the Father. Do you see how beautiful Jesus is? This is why we pray and and worship. Those songs are like gazing upon the beauty of Jesus, dwelling upon him. Because in Jesus, we are invited to this life where the Father looks on you and says, you are my beloved child. His face shines in delight upon you. What we've always wanted, our hearts, deep desire, that one thing we seek, it's ours. It's ours right now because the face of God is shining on you, saying, my beloved child, in Christ there is no condemnation. You are loved and cherished beyond measure. And you know what that does? That changes how we see the world. Rather than try to use God to manage the world through manipulation, we come to realize that our lives are perfectly safe in the hands of our loving Father. That nothing can separate us from the love of God and Christ. And so rather than seeking control, we can surrender it. We can surrender our lives. And in that place of surrender, all of a sudden, everything makes sense. The teachings of Jesus make sense. Perfect sense. It's perfect, perfectly brilliant sense to, to give yourself away for the sake of others. It makes perfect sense to live sacrificially. It makes perfect sense to give generously, knowing that nothing make us afraid because the one thing we need is ours life with god in jesus so whom shall i be afraid of whom shall i fear amen let's pray Father, we thank you for inviting us into a relationship of this nature. We pray, God, that you would cement in us that reality, that approach, that angle of approach to you, not all those different ways, but just seeking to do life with you. Thank you for that radical, life-changing invitation, God. And thank you for how Jesus has made the way for us. We praise you, we worship you for the goodness of this. In Christ's name, amen.